0: is what Ray McMillan, Pastor Ray McMillan, gathered us around him 25 plus years ago, was calling Jefferson and the founders Christian heroes. Not recognizing, one, that many of them were not really Christian, and two, to simply explain away their complicity with the hideous institution of slavery and white supremacy. When I read Uh, Thomas Jefferson and how he felt
1: about me and how the free once blacks are free they become nothing but pests in society and the two nations or the two people group once free could never live together in the same government and this has gone all around the world when we say everybody copies our constitution it is for the especially the African American around the world he's known As shiftless and lazy, and it was okay for him to be enslaved.
2: In the next two episodes, we continue to show the historical problems with Christian nationalist stories. In the present case, that means revealing specific errors which influenced Christian publisher Thomas Nelson to pull David Barton's book, The Jefferson Lies, from publication. To do that, we need to circle back to Cataclysm, Episode 3. In that episode, we described in depth the events that led up to Thomas Nelson's action. One of those events was a threatened boycott by a group of Cincinnati pastors in August 2012. That group of pastors and historians was led by Ray McMillian, pastor of Oasis Church and head of a nonprofit called Race to Unity. For many years, Ray raised both religious and historical concerns about Christian nationalist storytelling. He was especially troubled by David Barton's elevation of the founders, especially Jefferson, to hero status within the church.
1: And when you say, let's take America back, you lose us. I believe it was Bishop T.D. Jakes at the first meeting, he said, you lose me and you don't even know it. But I'm going to let you know it because I love you and I believe you love me. If I'm hurt, I want you to know I'm hurting. And please don't have me wrap my mind around somebody as a hero that enslaved people and children and sold them from their parents and took babies from their mother's breasts and it's so awful, it's hard to think about. And then racism came to protect the institution of slavery, to make sure that slavery stayed in place, the ideology of superiority and an inferiority really began to kick out. It was always lingering, but nobody articulated it like Thomas Jefferson. And as you read, Thomas Jefferson is not a a man who believes in Jesus Christ, the savior. So why is he honored by believers who say they're Christians? Why is he considered a hero to the church?
2: We are proud to say that Ray endorsed getting Jefferson right. While he was truly bothered by the historical errors in the Jefferson lies, what bothered him the most was what those errors made possible. It troubled Ray deep in his soul that David Barton led Christians to believe that Jefferson was someone Christians should call one of their own. It grieved him that the awfulness of slavery was being minimized to prop up American heroes. Despite Jefferson's slave-owning and trading, his beliefs that blacks were inferior to whites and that whites and blacks couldn't live together, and so many other insults, so many white Christians accept and even prefer a whitewashed Jefferson as good history. For Ray, understandably, it was and is too much. In 2013, before a Wheaton College crowd gathered to talk about Racial Reconciliation, Ray McMillian asked a question. Ray's talk made it clear he was talking about Thomas Jefferson. Although he directed this to a religious crowd, I submit it can be generalized to the greater society. It's a question we should ask ourselves.
1: Is it possible to eradicate racism in the church while at the same time promoting racist as heroes?
2: I'm Warren Throckmorton.
3: And I'm Michael Coulter. And we wrote Getting
2: Jefferson Right Fact Checking Claims About Thomas Jefferson. You're listening to the podcast series Telling Jefferson Lies, a story about how history can be hijacked for ideological and political purposes. In previous episodes, we told the story of how David Barton's best selling book about Thomas Jefferson was removed from publication in 2012. Today, we continue what we started last week by pointing out historical errors in the Jefferson Lies. As we do throughout the series, we rely on our book, Getting Jefferson Right, to address the faulty claims in Christian nationalist storytelling. Today, we begin a two part focus on the Jefferson Lies and slavery and racism. This series also tells a broader story about the surge of Christian nationalism and the misuse of history which often goes along with it this is episode 5 whitewashing jefferson part
1: 1 no
4: Jefferson, for nearly 60 years, was a huge leader in the anti-slavery movement, which is why up until and through MLK, black civil rights leaders were praising Jefferson for all he did to try to end slavery. Now, today, always say, oh, Jefferson owns slaves. He's a bad guy. Wait a minute. State law wouldn't. Same with George Washington. George Washington had a loophole in state law that says, when you die, you can free your slaves. Got it. He did. And then they closed that loophole by Jefferson. They said, oh, so, can't have that. we got to close that loophole.
2: Is that true? Was Barton accurate when he wrote in the Jefferson Lies that quote Jefferson was a bold, staunch, and consistent advocate and defender of emancipation and civil rights? End quote. Barton claimed that Jefferson was a champion of emancipation for quote all slaves. End quote. Really? Martin's project to make Jefferson into a civil rights hero is not without historical precedent. But as historian and author
5: Jamar Tisby says, the evidence has to be there. Scholars are not without opinions. Scholars are not without perspective. That's not the problem. The thing that makes it scholarship is can you back up your opinion and perspective with data and facts? And in this case, the historical record. So the issue with David Barton is not simply him making the assertion that Thomas Jefferson is some sort of role model as a racial egalitarian. The issue is having that view and then not being able to substantiate it, or the way he tries to substantiate it is to take quotes and moments out of larger context that would skew them to support his thesis. Barton Any historian, make whatever claim that you want, but you have to back that up with the primary sources, with the data, the facts that are verifiable by other scholars in a peer review. And so that's the issue. In The Jefferson Lies, Barton makes a number of
2: claims which are designed to rehabilitate Jefferson's image as a champion of Black civil rights. We cannot do justice to this topic in one episode. First, we will examine one of the most outrageous claims that Virginia law did not allow the emancipation of slaves during Jefferson's adult life and or in his will at his death. Listen again to this claim in another media appearance. He makes the same argument in The Jefferson Lies.
4: And Let let me jump in again on that because one of the blemishes is Washington owned slaves, Jefferson owned slaves, they could not have been good people. It's interesting that Washington, who did own slaves and inherited slaves, and Thomas Jefferson inherited most of his slaves when he was 14. He got almost 200 slaves between his inheritance and his his, uh, in-laws. Virginia law made it illegal to free your slaves. Now, they would not let you free your slaves. Now, there was a period of reprieve for a short time, starting in 1782, and so when George Washington died, he freed all of his slaves on his death. There was a loophole in the law. And the legislature goes, oh my gosh, we didn't see that. They changed the law. So Jefferson was not even able to free his slaves on his death.
3: In coming to the defense of Jefferson, David Barton in The Jefferson Lies functions as a defense attorney who emphasizes the best aspects and ignores evidence which doesn't fit the positive image he seeks to convey. Barton joins other Jefferson biographers who cite his views on abolition, and emphasized that his role as an owner of men was forced on him. Dumas Malone, the author of a six-volume biography of Jefferson, is one such historian cited by Barton in his attempt to present the most favorable portrait of Jefferson with regard to slavery. Barton, though, goes much further than Malone in attempting to exonerate Jefferson as a slave owner and racist. Barton is not completely inaccurate about Jefferson's record. There is credit due to Jefferson for his stirring statements in defense of human equality, such as those found in the Declaration of Independence, and the actions he took to end the importation of slaves. A careful investigation of Jefferson and slavery reveals a mixed portrait of our third president. What seems certain is that one cannot say, as Barton writes, that, quote, Jefferson faithfully and consistently advocated for emancipation and civil rights throughout his long life, even would have been easier and better for him if he had remained silent or inactive, end quote. We wanna get right to the point One of the key reasons for the fall of the Jefferson Lies was the section on slavery and race. We start with a truly egregious effort to mislead the public about Jefferson and the history of slavery in Virginia. This relates to the question of slave emancipation during Jefferson's adult life. Let's see if Barton meets Tisby's challenge. In the Jefferson Lies, Barton very definitely blamed Virginia slave laws for Jefferson keeping slaves instead of freeing them. Barton wrote, quote, If Jefferson was indeed so anti-slavery, then why didn't he release his own slaves? After all, George Washington allowed for the freeing of his slaves on his death in 1799. So why didn't Jefferson at least do the same at his death in 1826? The answer is Virginia law. In 1799, Virginia allowed slave owners to emancipate their slaves on their death. In 1826, state laws have been changed to prohibit that practice, end quote. Barton then described how difficult it was to emancipate slaves prior to 1782. He wrote, Then in 1723, a law was passed that forbade the emancipation of slaves under any circumstance, even by a last will and testament. The only exceptions were for cases of meritorious service by a slave, a determination that could be made only by a state governor and his council on a case-by-case basis. Barton then accurately said, Virginia passed a law in 1782 allowing enslavers to free their slaves. However, as we shall see, he did not portray it accurately. Barton wrote in the Jefferson Lies, quote, in 1782, for a very short time, Virginia began to move in a new direction, an emancipation law was passed declaring, end quote. In his book, Barton then quoted part of Virginia's 1782 law, quote, those persons who are disposed to emancipate their slaves may be empowered to do so, and dot, 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 it shall hereafter be lawful for any person, by his or her last will and testament, dot, 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 to emancipate and set free his or her slaves, end quote. Did you notice I said dot, dot, dot twice? The first time wasn't as important for the meaning as the second time. It is actually hard to believe what Barton did with a second ellipsis. Before I say what he left out, let me explain his version of Virginia law. After Barton quoted part of the Virginia law on manumission, Barton misled his readers by writing, It was as a result of this law that George Washington was able to free his slaves in his last will and testament in 1799. He said the same thing in this media appearance. And let, let me jump in again on that,
4: because one of the blemishes is Washington owned slaves, Jefferson owned slaves, they could not have been good people. It's interesting that Washington, who did own slaves and inherited slaves, and Thomas Jefferson inherited most of his slaves when he was 14. He got almost 200 slaves between his inheritance and his, and his uh, in-laws. Uh, Virginia law made it illegal to free your slaves. Now, Listen why, yeah. They would not let you free your slaves. Now, there was a period of reprieve for a short time, starting in 1782. And so when George Washington died, he freed all of his slaves on his death. It was a loophole in the law. And the legislature goes, oh my gosh, we didn't see that. They changed the law. So Jefferson was not even able to free his slaves on his death.
3: By saying this, Barton implied that Washington was only allowed to free his slaves at his death and that Jefferson, being alive, couldn't free his slaves at the same time. Barton also told readers that Jefferson was unable to free slaves via his will when he died in 1826. These are serious deceptions. In fact, enslavers were allowed to free their slaves after 1782 because of the law that Barton only partially quoted. If you are starting to get the idea that Barton left out an important part of the law, you are correct. We will tell you shortly what Barton left out. But first, you should know that Jefferson did indeed free a handful of enslaved people. He freed two people before he died, Robert Hemings in 1794 and James Hemings in 1796. Then he freed five people via his will in 1826. There were three others who were allowed to leave Monticello without legal documentation or a slave catcher being sent after them. All were members of the Hemings family. The significance of this will become clear in the next episode. It is important to know that Barton completely ignored the fact that Jefferson freed two people while he was alive and five more at his death. When Barton wrote that by 1826, Virginia law had been changed to prohibit slave owners from freeing their slaves on their death, he was either ignorant or lying. Remember what Greg Frazier said about the king of ellipses?
6: I call him the king of ellipses because he can't make his argument without ellipses without cutting things out. See, he doesn't, either doesn't, I, I like to think he doesn't know, rather than that he's choosing to do this, but I'd like to think he doesn't know that it's not intellectually honest to, when you quote something, but when you cut something out, you'd cut out what changes the meaning of what it is. Uh, and this is just a regular, a regular tactic, or just simply leaving off the last part of something.
3: In the Jefferson Lies, Barton did not quote the 1782 law on manumission in full to make it clear that after 1782, enslaved persons could be freed at any time, not just at the death of a master. Barton deliberately omitted the section that indicated enslaved people could be freed by an enslaver with appropriate legal documentation, then called a deed of gift or deed of manumission. In fact, many enslaved persons were freed by enslavers in this way those three periods hide a great deal of truth we are going to read the entire first section of the 1782 law on manumission by the way manumission means to emancipate i'm going to read the part that david barton cited in the jefferson lies and warren throckmorton is going to read the part of the law barton deliberately omitted Those persons who are disposed to emancipate their slaves may be empowered to do so, and
2: The same hath been judged expedient under certain restrictions, be it therefore
3: enacted, that It shall hereafter be lawful for any person, by his or her last will and testament,
2: or by any other instrument in writing, under his or her hand and seal, attested and proved in the county court by two witnesses, or acknowledged by the party in the court of the county where he or she resides,
3: to emancipate and set free his or her slaves,
2: or any of them who shall thereupon be entirely and fully discharged from the performance of any contract entered into during servitude and enjoy as full freedom, as if they had been particularly
3: named and freed by this act. The crucial mission is this phrase. Quote, "or by any other instrument in writing under his or her hand and seal attested and proved in the county court by two witnesses or acknowledged by the party in the court of the county where he or she resides." End quote. As we previously said, emancipated slaves needed a document to prove that their former owners had freed them. One can examine many such deeds at a website operated by Utah State University professor Michael Nichols. Nichols has compiled scores of pre-1820 Virginia deeds of manumission. Here is one example of Virginia former enslaver apparently influenced by the philosopher Thomas Jefferson and the Golden Rule. Samuel Hargrave of Charles City, from mature deliberation and conviction of my own mind, being fully persuaded that freedom is the natural right of all mankind and being desirous of doing so to others as I would be done by and having five Negroes Freeze Jane, aged about 34, Nancy, aged about 22, William, aged about 13, Sari, aged about 13, Aggie, aged about 8, males at 21, and females at 18 for minors, 20 January 1791, recorded 20 January 1791. The most notable example of emancipation is the case of Robert Carter III. Carter owned many plantations and enslaved over 450 people. However, in 1791, motivated by religious conversion, Carter began a process to free all his slaves. Carter braved criticism of white neighbors to engage in the largest emancipation of slaves prior to the Civil War. Carter used the section of Virginia law omitted by Barton in the Jefferson Lies to write what was called a deed of gift in order to initiate the massive process. Excerpts of the deed can be viewed in our book where Carter appeals to the 1782 law on manumission as a basis for his actions. Regarding the relationship of Carter and others to the Founding Fathers, Andrew Levy wrote, It becomes difficult to argue that the Founding Fathers acted liberally within their own moral universe when small slave owners up and down the Virginia coast were freeing their slaves. It becomes impossible, however, to make the argument when one of their peers commits the same radical act. We hope it is clear that Barton simply decided to omit an entire relevant section of the law to entirely change the meaning of that law. After The Jefferson Lies was pulled from publication, Glenn Beck brought Barton on his show to discuss the criticisms we wrote in Getting Jefferson Right. In the following clip, Barton offered a response to the 1782 law on manumission and his claim that Jefferson couldn't free his slaves. We will play a little and then
6: comment. Um, All right. I want to get to the uh, slavery issue because this one is so disturbing. And so it's complex, but easy to understand once you grasp it. Okay. They say Jefferson was not against slavery. He did not want to release his slaves. Um, He was, A, conflicted on this. Um, well, you know, not on releasing slaves. No, he was re- he was conflicted on um, a guy who writes, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. Own slaves. Owned He's conflicted. slaves. That's He's right. conflicted. That's right. Um, but again, it's like Al Gore um, flying a private jet, but saying that you shouldn't fly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you're in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, but there's something else that goes on. And the critics say that he did not free his slaves Um, um, you say it's because he had to pay a fine and taxes. No, actually, I I say
4: that you could free your slaves at death. George Washington did. Yes. And I say that because of the laws, you couldn't free your slaves. And so they take that that 1782 law where you can free slaves at death. And that 1782 law also contains a clause that says you can emancipate your slaves during your life. Oh, Mm -hmm. Barton left that out. That proves that he's trying to cook the books. And the point I make throughout the whole chapter is there's a whole bunch of laws Jefferson had to deal with. So Professor Throckmorton comes back. His whole rebuttal
6: is based on that 1782 law. By the way, Professor Throckmorton, what what era of history is he a professor or a, or a professor uh, in? You're talking the guy who's criticizing me,
4: who's a professor of psychology at Grove College?
6: Okay, yeah, so he's yeah. not a professor of history. No, he's a professor but of he's psychology. criticizing you That's because right. you don't have the credentials. Uh, the credentials and the content. Right, okay, and, and, got it, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the professor of
4: psychology... And he's recruited others to join in the fray, Uh and so he's got all these academics that now
6: has, you know... Okay, so anyway...
3: So Warren, what field of history is your specialty?
2: The history of grifting, apparently, since I have so much experience covering it, what with Barton, Driscoll, Gospel for Asia, and so on.
3: I wonder why Beck didn't point out Barton's extensive academic background in history of the American founding.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a mystery... He could have told us about that fake earned doctorate Barton told everybody for a day he had. But, you know, I will say this. It wasn't hard to figure out that Barton left out a whole paragraph from that 1782 law. It was so easy, even a psychologist could do it. So I like
3: how he makes a point throughout the, the whole chapter and the whole clip that Jefferson had a whole bunch of laws he had to deal with. But then that's actually not the point he makes.
2: No, he says a few things about other laws and situations, but the clearest message he promotes is that Jefferson was unable at any time to free his slaves. Let's go back to the clip.
6: Um, he says that... That, uh, that
4: clause of the law that, Jeff, that says you could emancipate your slaves during your life. See, the problem is, here's... I, I only brought three. This Let's go seven volumes of Virginia law books here. Okay. He quoted a 1782 law, he just forgot to quote the 1778 law, the 1791 law, the 1793 law, the 1795 law, the 1798 law, the 1802 law, all the other numerous laws that dealt with it. Uh, and Jefferson had to deal not with one law. And so you've got this thing where he says, oh, you can emancipate your slaves if you want to.
2: Barton in his Antique Roadshow brings out old books and starts quoting Dates Rapid Fire, saying that we forgot to quote various laws. But guess what? He didn't quote any of those laws either. He just cites a bunch of years that slavery laws were passed.
3: Yes, we can read too. And those laws relate to slavery. But it isn't until 1806 that there is significant restriction placed on manumission, which might discourage slave emancipations. However, even the 1806 law didn't prevent it. But let's say for the sake of discussion that the law in 1806 was so onerous that emancipation was practically impossible. That still means that between 1782 and 1806, Virginia law allowed manumission of slaves.
2: Exactly. And Barton never denied that in this clip with Beck. He never addressed the historical malpractice he committed by omitting that clause from his book. This technique is to distract listeners with uh, his relics, with help from his accomplice Glenn
4: Beck, of course got a quote here from a guy who corresponded with Jefferson his name is Edward Coles he was the private secretary to James Madison friend of Jefferson he said that you see Edward Coles mm-hmm. here and he writes Jefferson says i have got to get out of virginia he says i've only I- i've only been principled against slavery but have had feelings so repugnant to it as to decide me not to hold them slaves which decision has forced me to leave my native state and with it all my relations and friends?
6: Okay, leaving a state back then, remember, there's no telephones, there's nothing. There's no airplanes to jump on. And leaving Virginia, if you've ever lived in Virginia, I have, mm-hmm. you're not a Virginian to Virginians. That's right. You know, you unless you were born there, That's you're right. not a Virginian. Leaving back then big is a very big deal. Yeah. Big deal. Okay.
4: And he says, I have to leave all my relations and friends because unless I get out of the state, I can't free my slaves. Now, if Professor Throckmorton's right that he could have just emancipated them, then why didn't he? Because Jefferson wrote back and said the laws, plural, do not
6: allow us to free them. Not one law. Professor Throckmorton, courts one. It's the laws. And this and- is how I want you to understand this, America. If you're a small businessman and you try to go into business, they'll say to you, you can go into business, sure. But try to build your business. It's not one law. That's right. It's a series of laws that make it so financially um, obscene, you cannot do it. So, Michael,
2: when did that exchange take place between Coles and Jefferson? When did they write each other?
3: 1814. (laughs) Well, then.
2: So, by 1814, while it still wasn't impossible to free a slave in Virginia, it no doubt was more difficult, as Jefferson said, to turn them loose. That doesn't change the fact that Barton still deliberately omitted a critical clause in the 1782 law. It also doesn't change the fact that for 24 years, Jefferson could have freed his slaves, and in fact did free two of them while he was alive and freed more via his will in 1826, which, as even this psychologist knows, comes after 1814.
6: Let's go back to the clip. Why, when Jefferson died in the end, what was he concerned with with his money? Was he concerned at all? What money? Exactly right. Explain
4: that. Now, see, what happened is if you free your slaves, another law said if you emancipate your slaves, you've got to provide security bonds for certain types. And so we don't want slaves to be drained on the state. We want slaves, free slaves out of the state within a year. Uh, If they come back in, we can, and so it's just really complicated. Notice how he glosses over the phrase, quote, security
2: bonds for certain types, end quote as if that would have kept Jefferson from freeing some of his slaves, the
3: not certain
2: types of enslaved people.
3: Virginia law did require enslavers to provide support if they needed it for freed female slaves under 18, freed males under 21, and freed adults over 45. However, that means that many of Jefferson's adult slaves could have been freed without such support. Barton is just wrong that he would have had to provide support for all freed slaves. Let's not overlook the fact that by maintaining them in bondage, he paid to support them via the food and shelter he provided. In some cases, enslavers freed adult slaves, and then those adults acquired their children or elderly parents as slaves.
2: Back to Barton's self-defense. He
4: is going to say that Jefferson was too poor to emancipate his slaves. Jefferson doesn't have income. He had to sell his cherished library just to raise enough funds
6: to be able to survive. The, 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 listen to this, America. The Library of Congress, the original Library of Congress, he sold to the United States government. He loved it. He, he sold it because? Because he didn't have
4: economic income. So how are you going to security bond all your slaves? Well, it
2: was complicated, but that wasn't the argument Barton made in The Jefferson Lies. The argument he made was that Washington could free his slaves at his death because of the 1782 law, but Jefferson wasn't allowed to do that during his life. By his death in 1826, Jefferson couldn't free slaves because the loophole had been closed. That was his argument, and that was egregiously false. In his defense, Barton moved the goalpost, and not very effectively at that.
3: One can also argue that emancipation would have been inconvenient were costly to Jefferson. But that wasn't the argument that Barton offered in The Jefferson Lies. On that point, Jefferson had pretty expensive tastes. If he was such a champion of human rights, he could have sold off some of his land, which he did on occasion, reduced or imported his wine bill, or ran his enterprise more efficiently. If that sounds harsh, try arguing the point as a slave. As
2: we demonstrate, we're aware that Virginia slave laws after 1806 made manumission more complex. In some cases, Jefferson himself supported those laws, which made it more difficult to free enslaved people. So, in any event, we still can't agree with this stunning assertion from Barton in The Jefferson Lies. Quote, Given Jefferson's lengthy record of repeated efforts to secure emancipation for all slaves, the modern characterization of Jefferson as a racist advocate of slavery is highly misleading if not altogether false, quote. In summary, regarding Jefferson and the legal environment of slaves and their possible emancipation, Barton misrepresents Virginia laws regarding slavery. More significantly, what a tremendous act of support of human equality would have been had Jefferson, like Robert Carter III, freed his slaves while he was president of the United States. He could have done so, but chose not to. One could argue that Jefferson was constrained by cultural conditions or by his own financial issues, but he cannot be called a champion for the emancipation of slaves. People interviewed for this series talked about whitewashing the history. They said one of the worst offenses that Barton and the Christian nationalists commit is the whitewashing of Jefferson specifically and the nation's history more broadly. Here's historian Tory Jackson.
0: When we start sanitizing and even deifying our founders, something that, by the way, I think I want to say was. Galstead's book from like 35, 40 years ago on the way that the founders were turned into icons in the early 19th century. It's not new, Uh, but, but it does get to the point where, and this is what Ray McMillan, pastor Ray McMillan gathered us around him 25 plus years ago was calling Jefferson and the founders, Christian heroes, not recognizing one that many of them were not really Christian And two, to simply explain away their complicity with the hideous institution of slavery and white supremacy.
2: Joel Bowman is the founder and pastor of the Temple of Faith Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Bowman once felt that the Southern Baptist Convention was making progress on racial reconciliation. Today, his church is no longer in the convention
7: we've seen the hypocrisy and how David Barton has not been the only white person to whitewash Jefferson. I remember I, I attended a Missouri Senate Lutheran High School just outside of Detroit, and in retrospect, my history teacher was, in essence, teaching a course on Christian nationalism in which he was painting all of these people, you know, Jefferson and Franklin and Washington. He was painting all of them as these wonderful Christian men. And even while I was in high school, I knew that many of them were deists and theologically certain uh, certainly would not fall within the pale of evangelicalism from a theological perspective. And so I saw the hypocrisy way back then. And you're talking about, you know, 1985, 86, when I was in high school. So Any book that is written under the rubric of being Christian, really, it has a moral responsibility to tell the truth.
2: Joel McDermott is an attorney and theologian who wrote a book titled The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. In the context of the awfulness of American racial history, McDermott has struggled to understand whitewashing.
4: I can't comprehend the, the, the amount of effort that's put into just completely not having to see what our forefathers did. It, it's, it's, we call it whitewashing, but that makes it sound so easy. It's like, it's like what Van Til used to talk about in Apologetics. The unbeliever suppresses the truth about God. And it's an, it's an active thing. You have to work to do it. And that's, it's the same way with our racial history. We don't want to see it, and we will pass laws, and we will, we will lie, cheat, steal. We will do everything we have to to get these books out so our kids don't have to hear that this is even a possibility. America was the golden child in history, you know, and we never did anything wrong. It's, it's mind-blowing. It really is.
2: As we have seen, some people will even omit whole sections of relevant text to get the meaning they want. Author and historian Jamar Tisby believes that impulse to denial is a critical problem, one which may be at the heart of the failure to confront and end racism in American society.
5: You asked, what are the consequences of whitewashing history, whether that's about Jefferson in particular, or U.S. history more broadly. And one of the things that I write in my first book, The Color of Compromise, is that history and scripture teach us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance, there can be no repentance without confession, and there can be no confession without truth. So the consequences of whitewashing history are that we wash out the truth. And if we wash out the truth, we break the first link in the chain to authentic reconciliation. So without truth, we can't confess. And if we can't confess, then we can't repent or repair. And if we can't repent or repair, then we cannot reconcile. And maybe that's a big reason why, as we record this in 2023, we are still talking about the crisis of racism in the United States. because we have historically failed to genuinely tell the truth about racism and the part it has played in this nation, both in the past and in the present. And if we cannot tell that truth, if we can't say genuinely what happened, as painful as that may be, then we cannot move forward toward repair or reconciliation. So ultimately, what People such as David Barton and others, and even those who consume his work with approval, what you're doing is impeding any progress toward repair, impeding any progress toward reconciliation. And not just it's what you're stopping, it's what you're also promoting, which is continued forms of harm, whether through ignorance or apathy or the misapplication of what people think is true. You are continuing to replicate cycles of harm due to racism. So, you know, to me as a historian but also as a Christian, the Bible says don't bear false witness. <laughs> like like this is a very basic 10 commandments kind of uh command in Christianity and it is absolutely frustrating and mind-boggling to a degree that you have so many people who Are so vocal about their Christianity, openly and consistently, completely disregarding the injunction not to bear false witness. And they are listening to people who literally make a platform and many times a fortune by bearing false witness, by telling lies, either about other people or about U.S. history or about God.
2: I am conscious that we have not answered Ray McMillian's question. Is it possible to eradicate racism in the church while at the same time promoting racists as heroes? Of course, each listener will need to think about it and form an opinion. Some listeners will be more concerned with Racism in the general society, and I think that question can be generalized. Personally, I think Ray is generally correct. While I am fascinated by Jefferson's life and work, he is no hero to me. There is a difference between hero worship and recognizing intelligence and important ideas. As we have said time and again, the real objective is not to whitewash facts and events of history, but to get Jefferson right. Telling Jefferson Lies is written and produced by Warren Throckmorton. Today's installment was hosted by Warren Throckmorton and Michael Coulter. The podcast is brought to you by the second edition of Getting Jefferson Right, fact-checking claims about Thomas Jefferson by Throckmorton and Coulter. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or just about anywhere books are sold. For more information, go to gettingjeffersonright.com. The next episode, Whitewashing Jefferson Part 2, will post next week. Today's closing song is again Ain't It a Shame to Work on Sunday by the Bethel Jubilee Quartet and written by T.H. Wiseman. Telling Jefferson Lies theme song is The World Awaits Us All by Roman Candle. Background music was provided by Jonas Fair and Warren Throckmorton. See the show notes for more credits. Please like the podcast and spread the word on social media. Every podcaster says that, but it really does help, and it makes us feel good too. Thanks for listening.